every lake has something to teach you and that's that's part of fly fishing you you know you get out there and because you want feel that fish on the on your rod on the end of your line your brain goes into overdrive instinctively or you force yourself to rethink why you didn't do as well the last time you were on it but here you are again on the same lake you're going to try a different approach and eventually the lake teaches you what you need to know to catch fish. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, a look behind the scenes of the fly fishing world, featuring insight from guides and gear reps, conversation with resort managers, thoughts on entomology, discussions on fly patterns and destinations, and plenty of fish stories. Most importantly, it's an exploration of this lifelong journey we call fly fishing. Here is your host, Mark Hopley, with this episode of Fly Fishing 97. So today, I think we're going to try something a little different, something that uh, I know I'm kind of excited about. Uh, my friend uh, Bill Lawler, uh, William Lawler, is uh, going to join us. I met him probably almost 30 years ago. I was working at a fly fishing hunting store uh, called Big Sky Sports, and uh, he just started coming in the shop. We started kind of chatting uh he had lots of good fish stories seems to really know what he was talking about and uh after that he and i have fished last 30 years uh learned a lot from this guy and i thought it would be a a nice opportunity to uh have a little chat kind of see where his mind's at and uh talk a little fly fishing so uh bill thanks for uh coming on the program oh no problem mark i'm it's a pleasure to be here actually you you and i have known each other for probably longer than we a long time long time <laughs> we've been we are we are what they say well acquainted you know uh, i learned a lot from you uh fly fishing over the years for the many decades we've been fishing you know, and i learned as much from you but w- what i wanted i wanted to talk to you on the program because you are a wealth of knowledge and um you've been doing this a long time and I j- i'm just curious kind of how fly fishing all started for you bill Oh, let's see. It goes back longer than I care to think about, but I suppose I caught my first trout and became enthralled with salmonids in general uh, when I was about five years old in Algonquin Park, of all places, northern Ontario. I caught a brook trout in a small pool underneath a a culvert, of all things, and uh, my brother, Joe, was uh, showing me how to catch these brook trout. And something happened. It was one of those things that you never forget. I mean, I I don't remember a lot when I was a child, but these are one of those childhood memories that stand out in Technicolor. And uh, I was interested in trout fishing from that point on, although through the years I fished for, you know, northern pike and walleye and bass and all the rest of it. But uh, my heart was always in catching trout. It was all I wanted to do. So you kind of got hooked um, in the eastern part of the country, but then you made the move out to uh, British Columbia. Yeah, my father retired from the uh, Air Force in 1968 when I was in grade nine. And I finished my high school in Campbell River, where I discovered salmon fishing. And I missed quite a bit of school in grade 10 and 11 and 12 due to uh, salmon runs. So... (laughs) (laughs) I enjoyed the the years that I spent in Camel River immensely. Seems to me you might have seen a certain judge that people are fairly know fairly well who's wrote a few books. Well, it, 
it's funny you bring up Roderick Hay Brown because I actually fished beside him on the Campbell River below the bridge. On two occasions I ran into him. I was fly fishing. He was fly fishing. He wasn't what I would call a very talkative man. He was he was a private man. A nod, a smile. Everyone showed him a great amount of respect. I think more because he was a judge than he was a fisherman, but that was my take on it. He died far too young, actually. So you spent a lot of time uh, fishing uh, the rivers on the island then? I did. The Nimkish. Uh, I was in the Nimkish Valley quite a bit uh, in the heydays. Still had fished small streams that uh, north of Campbell River, uh, one in particular that flows into Brown ba- Brown's Bay. Uh, I can't even tell you the name of this creek. I don't think it had one. It was just a small stream, but, you know, accidentally discovered it one day, just walked up it and hit a few pools. And it had a beautiful little run of sea run cutthroat and steelhead in it. And nobody was fishing it. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, as the years went by, they built a, uh, a log sort at the mouth of the estuary and uh, the stream is no more. But back in the uh, late sixties, early seventies, it was just a, a private little spot. You know those private little spots we all have. Yeah, we don't want to name them. No. <laughs> we wouldn't do that. So uh, no. where'd you go after that, Bill? Where, where did uh, where'd your fishing journey take you? After Campbell River, of course, uh, I decided I had to get back into school. And I went. I moved to Victoria, went to Camosun College, and then University of Victoria, where I met my wife. And fishing took a hiatus at that point in my life for several years. I was busy doing so many other things and i got out fishing when i could in victoria usually down to the rocks by the golf course and i got chased off the rocks by a sea lion one day i didn't realize i'd taken his spot and he come out of the water and i needed to change my drawers i think when i got home if i remember correctly but the salmon fishing off the rocks uh ground fishing cod uh, ling cod etc and i when i could find time i got out it never left me what is it specifically, Bill, that attracts you to fly fishing? <laughs> it's a good, that's probably the question. Um, for me, it's I find it rejuvenating. I get out into wilderness. I look around me. I, I look at the, the ospreys, the birds. I think about Darwin's natural selection. I see it all in play. I see a timelessness, and it allows me time to think and relax and rejuvenate. I do enjoy that part of it. You know, it's it's one of those things, you know, a lot of people, <laughs> if people concentrated on the really important things in life, there'd be a shortage of fly rods, Mark. But you're right, Bill. I mean, for me, that's, and that's what, um, what I enjoy fishing with you over the years so much about is the fact that you're out there. Yeah, it's nice to have company, but you kind of get away from the everyday, the thoughts stop, you, you know, you, the things you had, the, the do list kind of disappears and you just kind of uh, just jump right in. Well, yeah, when I was, that's true. Uh, when I was at university, I took marine biology and then I did work for the branch in the mid seventies as a fisheries technician for a short term until uh, provincial politics changed and uh, they decided that uh, they were going to downsize uh, fish and wildlife and a lot of people got their pink slips but i enjoyed the time i was there and after that i got into sales and marketing and got married bought a house in in burnaby by deer lake and had two children and even during those times uh, weekends if i had a saturday or sunday off i was 
upon the Vedder or the, the Chikamus or the Squamish or the Chehalis. And I think that's why I have arthritis today, because these usually fall and winter runs. And I was out in the, the, the cold rain and the sleet and the snow. You and I joke about this a lot, but I'll tell you, <laughs> I used to give you a hard time when you say, I can't see to tie this fly on. And I'll tell you what, if I don't have my cheaters now, that fly's not getting on the line. Yes, we all get old. I mean, uh, I just spent a weekend in Vancouver, and I'm, I'm still recuperating. It takes me as longer now to get over a good time as it does to have it. Bill, who's been the most influential person in your in your fly fishing? Like, who did you learn the most from? Who did I learn the most from? Probably, well, if we go back, I have to go back to do that. And I probably have to thank my older brother, Joseph. He's 10 years my senior. He's been gone for a long time now. Um, he passed away in 98. He, he took me. He was my second father. Let's put it that way. Uh, like when we lived in Manitoba for three years, we'd trot up and down the Suris River uh, fishing for gold eye and light tackle. And then when I would visit my Aunt Rose farm in Warkworth, central Ontario, there was a small creek that flows through Warkworth. And uh, he would take me down to these, these brook trout pools uh, with the fly rod and a small white moth fly it was just a small white fly i think it was cheap chicken feathers or something and you know this is a long time ago i think i owe i think i owe him for that yeah well said if you could change something about fly fishing uh, i i like to ask my guests this is not something that always pops into your head but if is there something that you'd like to change or just maybe um see differently um i would that's a good question. There's one thing that bothers me. There's a lot of lakes that are being treated like, well, I put and take. There's a lot of lakes that are overstocked today. I see a lot of lakes that have so many fish in it, they're literally starving themselves out. They're wiping out of the uh, terrestrials and aquatic invertebrates that are found there to the point that it would take several years to let this lake come back without stocking any fish in it, to come back to a point where it was bountiful again. Um, mm. I see an overstocking situation, and it's all based on money, of course. It's all based on recreation. The Fish and Wildlife Branch is no longer called that. It's, you know, it is a recreational business. I would like to see some lakes managed, again, catch and release, with fewer fish planted in them, and allowing some fish in, in a, a good number of lakes to get larger. And that's one thing that bothers. I see it a lot. I, I probably see it too much. There are some lakes that should be shut down to ice fishing for similar reasons. Uh, everybody likes to get out there and catch a few trout. And I understand that. That's, that's, that's a great thing. But I would like to see the lakes being managed a little tighter than they are at the moment. I mean, I know you golf. I've, I don't golf, but uh, and that's great. It's it's good that you get out and golf. It's okay with me because it keeps you and a whole bunch of other guys off the lakes. So I'm all for it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I might take that the wrong way. <laughs> so uh, I know you've got a few of these, but uh, something else I always like to jump into is just in general crazy fish stories. And you spend a lot of time on the water. Anything bizarre that's happened to you that uh, comes to mind? I remember fishing a little lake 
called Morris Lake. It's on off the, uh, the Harrison River. It's up the Harrison Valley kind of thing, uh, the outflow of the lake. It's a hike in now. You can't drive to it, of course. And I do remember one day hooking a big 20-plus pound chum. It was huge. And it, it just soared out of the water, like five and a half feet in front of me. And then it hit the water and, and just dug itself in. It, it was a big drop-off where the, 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 the stream flows into the lake. And it seemed to dive down. And I took four or five steps forward right to the edge of the drop-off. And this thing shot out of the water, hit me in the chest, and knocked me flat on my butt. Uh, laid me out completely. And then, of course through the hook and it was gone and i sat there stunned <laughs> jaw slack my eyes as big as saucers couldn't believe it <laughs> i wish i could have seen that well i was by myself and which is a good thing because i <laughs> would not want that to, to be videotaped at all that's probably before but, gopros <laughs> oh probably long before then this is back about 84 i think or 83 yeah. but yeah there's lots of good stories i mean um Ospreys coming in, loons swimming right beside you. You'll, you know, lots of times we've caught a, uh, I've caught a small trout, and I've had a loon follow me around a lake for half the day once, just waiting for me to feed it. You know, it's mm -hmm. that's the nice thing about getting out there. You never know. We've all talked about those those perfect days, but I don't know if there is such a thing as a perfect day. There's no two days have ever been the same. And that's the wonderful thing about it. That's true, because if, if you know what to expect, it somehow lessens the entertainment on the water, doesn't it? That's well said, yes. Yeah. That's, 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 that's the draw. That's your ticket. That's what keeps coming. you keep coming back to the circus for. You never know what you're going to see. So have you been getting out a lot lately, or uh, where have you been fishing? I, more, I did more so this year than I did last year. Uh, we've had this big project here at the, on the building, and I got involved with that. And I, I did manage to get out a little more than I did the year before. Yeah. I had some good fishing this year, but I'm, my, I'm getting older now. I'm, I'm going to be 67 in December. And my comfort zone um, is, is, is shrinking somewhat i now look for quality fishing instead of just fishing so i'll i'll go a little farther afield sometimes to find what i'm looking for as a matter of fact next year i'm i'm hoping i'm planning a trip up for arctic char hmm. so nice i know from past experience whenever uh you you tend to go to the dragonflies the big patterns a lot of times down deep and have uh well cleaned my clock quite a few times tell me kind of where your head's at when you hit a water for the first time what how you're looking to approach it and uh kind of what's your kind of strategies for well i i do a little just a just a search around to see what's in the water water that scares me is you'll come up to a lake and it's actually alive with water daphnia some algae a huge amount of shrimp along the shore you're looking at well-fed fish in those circumstances I, I will sometimes trick out a, a search pattern other lakes i like i like nymphing i mean i, I have coronamid fished uh, many times it seems to be the you know the, the thing to do these days everybody seems to be coronamid fishing i still do it from time to time but not as often as you would think i like nymphing i like yeah. getting down in the summer i mean some of these lakes uh 
the fish are holding at 22 to 35 feet. They're pretty fussy. Uh, you've got to seduce them. You've got to get down with them and play with them down there. What's a go-to pattern for you, Bill, in that situation? Well, for me, I'll sometimes go to a small micro leech and I'll dance it. I'll get it down there and I'll work it. I'll, I'll get it dancing about short, sharp mm-hmm. retrieves. I'll jink it a little bit, dance it a little bit sometimes. It triggers them. Uh, they have uh, an instinct for movement. Uh, they're drawn to it. I like dragonfly nymphs. I do like shrimp, micro leeches, um, different colors, different sizes, different shapes. One thing about fishing those big darners, those big gonfus that uh, mm. we like to fish, those takes are undeniable. They're pretty rough because usually, you see, they these these dragonfly nymphs defend themselves. They do bite. So when you have a big trout come up on one, is you're going to take it hard and on the turn normally and he's going to really come down on it uh that's exciting i look forward to that i i that's one of the things that i revel uh, in fly fishing it's it's number one on my list yeah no i hear you it doesn't get much better than that especially uh, this time of year when the the trout are uh, strapping on the feed bags heading into winter uh they they'll search out those big items yeah they're looking for big meals um you know they're they're counting their calories that's for sure and uh, it's a good time of year to get out. I always like the fall. The water's cooled off. The fish are well fed. And now with the colder water holding more oxygen, they're full of vinegar and they will just run on you. We're talking today with William Lawler. Uh, Bill's been fishing a lot of years in the interior of British Columbia, the uh, the island, uh, basically across the country. I guess I guess one of the probably the biggest things too, Bill, is the fact that uh, your dad did what he did for a living in the Air Force. You, you moved around and probably covered lots of different water. Oh yeah, we we, we seem to get posted. Uh, we lived in southern Manitoba, Ontario. Uh, we even posted to Baden, Germany for six months. Uh, Lulu Island. Yeah, I've been across the country a few times. I have relatives in Ontario. I talked about my aunt Rose. She had a a dairy farm in Warkworth, which is now a heritage site. It's a heritage farm. Uh, I had a wonderful childhood. I really did. Uh, too bad it didn't last as long longer. But <laughs> um, I have a T-shirt that I just picked up in Vancouver. It says, uh, I remember when I was a kid. No, wait, I still do that. That sounds about right. Well, I think I, I, I know a lot of fishermen. and I've met a lot of fishermen over the years. And there is still something innocent about running into a fellow fly fisherman. I've never met one that was creepy. I've never want, met one that I didn't that I didn't like. I mean, it, it, it's that kind of thing. You know what I mean? I do. Of all those waters that you have fished, if you could pick, you don't have to necessarily name them, but what's your go-to kind of uh, dream water? Uh, a well-managed, productive interior lake with the cross-section of panask and triploid not overstocked so these and catch and release i mean when you catch a beautiful big rainbow and you let it go if something doesn't change in you you, there's a feeling you get when you turn it back yeah and know that it's going to get bigger and know someone else is going to have the pleasure in catching it it does feel good yeah Amen to that. Hey, t- let's talk a little bit about gear. Uh, what's your ideal setup for, uh, whether it's 
you know, say Montana, Washington, British Columbia, Idaho, still water fly fishing. It's it's very similar pretty much in all those those areas. What what's your go-to for equipment as far as rods? Well, I've got I've got a selection of sage rods. I've got um, nine foot, nine and a half foot, four weight, five weight. I've got a ten foot, five weight. I think if I was talking to someone who was just getting into it, who's had a few trips under their belt, I would recommend a, a good quality nine foot five weight with uh, an intermediate floating and a quick sinking main line. You should have at least three of those. Uh, after you get into it for a few years, that number will increase. I mean, I've got, you've got a lot of fishing equipment. I've got a lot of the fishing equipment. You know, I, my biggest worry is that after I'm dead, my wife will sell all my stuff for what I told her I paid. It's going to be a lot of money lost. Yeah, maybe just um, give her my number. But <laughs> what about what about boats? What about what do you what are you fishing out of? Oh, I just <laughs> I bought another boat this year. Come on. I, I bought a, a I bought a brand new uh, Outcast Pack Eight. It's bright blue. Um, the dragonflies were, were all over it this year for some reason. It's just the right shade of blue. It attracts them, but I like it. You do realize you can only use one boat at a time, don't you? I know. But I've got I've got three now, and uh, well, I've kind of turned my nine foot uh, Outcast uh, to over to Will. He's uh, he's actually come coming out with me Sunday. Uh, he's he's 33 years old now. You're talking and, about your son here. Yeah, Will. And uh, he's discovered fly fishing now for the first time in his life, although I did try to get him involved with it early on. Mm-hmm. But it's it's tough with younger people. I mean, they've got video games, the Internet, cell phones. You can't force, you can't force the issue. I know I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> people are either drawn to it or not. But if they come around to it in time, I think most fly fishers are happy happy to 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 teach and to help, help oh absolutely out. yes i agree um it's, it's 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 a wonderful thing to be able to pass it on and that's kind of what has happened with will he's just discovered it now he's uh he's finished his education he's got a really good job now and he's got a bit mm-hmm. of spare time as a matter of fact him and i are going out sunday well you know i got to give you credit because uh when i was back in the day in the what was it the Mid eighties, yeah. I can't even remember now. Late late eighties, when you, I was working at a fly shop, and you'd come in there, and we'd just, uh, you know, shoot the breeze for oh, lots, lots. Lo- long, long periods of That's time, right. talking about lakes to go to, looking at patterns. Hey, I've been out here, and it was just, it was a really, it was almost like a coffee shop. That place, wasn't it? It really was, and you know, we were both much younger back then. The two of us, we would hit two or three lakes in a day. We'd fish a lake, pack up, move, unpack, blow the boats up, back on the water. Of course, we were younger. We had a lot more energy, and we were so much more tolerant for uh, to uh, adversities than we are now as we get older. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I cannot t- picture taking all the gear out of the truck to hit more than... I just can't imagine hitting more than one or two lakes well, in a day. It just doesn't even seem that's doable. It, that's it exactly. As I said earlier, my, my comfort my comfort area is rather narrow now compared to what it was when we were we were out exploring. You know, I think too, Bill, what it is for me now too is I really want to, 
I want to know the lake. So, you know, you jump into a lake, you maybe you catch a couple of fish, say, hey, let's try the one that was just down the road. But I always feel like the second I leave that lake, I stop learning and maybe, you know, the grass isn't always greener. No. And, you know, when I was younger and fished by, when I was fishing alone, and I did for a number of years, I would sometimes hit a lake and found it very tough. But I would come back to it because I wanted to crack it. It was a challenge. And that's another part of fly fishing. You embrace the challenge. It becomes it becomes an addiction to win that lake. And you, I'm not talking about catching fish and killing them. I'm talking about catching fish that are difficult to catch. Well, and getting that moment where you're dialed in, it's one thing to catch one or two or three fish, but then to figure out, okay, this is what's happening. There's a damselfly hatch. Let's try and mm-hmm. imitate that best we can. Then you just, that's a game changer when you get dialed in and you... Yeah. Um, you figure it out. Like you say, you crack the code. Every lake has something to teach you. And that's, that's part of fly fishing. You, you know, you get out there and because you want feel that fish on the, on your rod, on the end of your line, your brain goes into overdrive instinctively, or you force yourself to rethink why you didn't do as well the last time you were on it. But here you are again on the same lake. You're going to try a different approach and eventually the lake teaches you what you need to know to catch fish. I was thinking of some lakes that you and I fished 30 years ago that uh, now are, I wouldn't say barren, but like you say, basically devoid of any large fish. They're overstocked, some small, you know, it's a put and mm-hmm. it, it seems to be rather, you know, it's prevalent, very prevalent today. It's, uh, as I said earlier, it, it it almost feels to me like they're, they're running it as a, a business and uh, not as uh, environmentalists. Well, I, one thing though, I would say is we have to give the freshwater fishery society a lot of credit for, oh, for crack, you know turning those lakes into trophy lakes and catch and release lakes and one fish limit lakes yes. and like you said where would we exactly where would we be today without them they they are everyone is in debt to them for all the hard work they've done over so many years and and again with the salmon uh, you know habitat recovery and and steelhead uh there's been a lot of work done on that but you know the degradation of uh watersheds and and uh, rivers and lakes continues um it's a fight that it's a fight that's ongoing when you were working for uh, fisheries back in the 70s think of those fish that that were getting stocked that you didn't see any triploids none no 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 there was no 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 no. um mostly uh the lakes were being stocked with panask some blackwater uh, br- right. brown, uh, uh, brook trout as well, but these were all natural. Uh, there was no uh, radiation of, uh, of reproductive organs uh, to sterilize them, no. There seems to be a lot less brook trout these days. I don't know if it's just me or, I, or maybe I'm just not fishing the right waters, but I definitely see uh, lots of strains of rainbows that look very different, whether they have lots of spots, no spots, um, uh, like you say, mm-hmm. triploids. And, you know, it's... Well, they've got a mixed bag. Uh, unfortunately, in the hatcheries, in the Fraser Valley, uh, especially, they've, they've crossbred some, I believe they've crossbred. I'm, this is a theory of mine, but they look like cross between possibly uh, Fraser Valley, um, Blackwater, Rainbows. Uh, Blackwaters have some unusual markings on them. Um, they've introduced uh, rainbow trout, it almost seems like, from another part of the country. It's worth investigating. I'm sure if, if someone made a few phone calls, they could sort it out. But I have seen some very odd-looking 
rainbow trout in the last two or three years. Uh, as a matter of fact, just this year alone, we caught one that was heavily spotted completely 360 degrees around the body, including the belly, which was covered in spots. That's unusual. Um, it was about a three and a half, four pound rainbow, but it looked like a leopard trout from Alaska. Right. And you know what else I find interesting about that, Bill, is uh, think back 30 years ago, you're fishing for panace. You kind of know what those fish are feeding on. But all of a sudden, guys are using booby patterns and they're using blobs and they're using attractor patterns that didn't always no. necessarily work on panace. No, they don't. Um, panace rainbows, they're, you know, they're indigenous. Uh, they go back right to the last ice age, uh, something 12, 13,000 years ago. So they're well wired for their environment. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you start introducing hatchery fish that have been crossbred, interbred, and things start to go a little bit south as far as the quality of the in species. Uh, they have to be careful about that. Um, I know of some salmon hatcheries that have suffered greatly. Uh, the salmon returning have really reduced in size and stamina uh, because there's so much interbreeding in the hatcheries going on. People don't realize that salmon coming back to the streams, uh, brothers will not mate with sisters. They seem to know the difference. They seem to sort things out. But if you get into a hatchery, there's forced crossbreeding, and uh, the species suffers from it. It comes out a little weaker and a little less able to fend off disease, and uh, they're generally smaller and a little less energetic. And uh, as I said, it's it's something I'd like to see change. But well, can is there anything better than a three or four pound panache? say probably a triploid that comes straight out of the water <laughs> as opposed to some of those other ones we catch that just exactly. kind of dog it. You know, this is, you're talking about reintroducing quality fish into quality lakes. And yeah, we, we can do that. There's, I actually think Panasque rainbows, which are well-fed, not overstocked, but good size. They grow to a really good size naturally. They are probably the prettiest of the, in the in the rainbow trout family, they're true Kamloops uh, trout, and uh, I would hope that they have uh, something in place to keep that strain uh, strong and uh, vibrant. Well put. Well, Bill, I want to thank you for your time today, man. I uh, I have learned so much over the years chatting with you and fishing with you. Um, I appreciate your time on the water, and I appreciate your insight today. I appreciate you for all, all of the above as well. All right, Bill, tight lines, and uh, good luck on Sunday. We'll see you on the water soon. We will, Mark. All the best. Thanks for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or a topic you would like to hear on the show. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines, and we'll see you on the water.